Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I am here today with Matt Faircloth. Matt, thanks for being with us. Uh, it's great to be here, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we start off and you can tell our listeners who you are and where you're from. Awesome. Thanks. So uh, let's see. I'm, uh, I'm Matt Faircloth. I uh, grew up in Baltimore, went to Virginia Tech for college, got a degree in engineering because people, when I was growing up, told me that you're good at math and science. And so you should get a degree in engineering. And so I did that not knowing what an engineer did. Um, so they, you know, grownups tell me that's what I should do. So I'll do that. And so I went and got my degree in engineering from Virginia Tech. And by like my senior year, I figured out that, whoa, I don't want to be an engineer. This doesn't sound like fun to sit on a desk. And, you know, I had the brain for it, but I didn't want, I didn't have the personality for it, if that makes sense. So I got a job in technical sales and I sold for a company called Ingersoll Rand for about seven years as one of their traveling salesmen, Um, bopped around a little bit. I uh, was adopted, I not adopted as a 20 year old, I was adopted as that as a three month old. And I'd begun the journey of finding my birth mother. And I had found her when I was living in North Carolina working for Ingersoll Rand. And so within about three to four months, I moved from where I lived in North Carolina to Philadelphia to be closer to my birth mother and to build a relationship with her and also be closer to the parents I grew up with. So um, in that transition, I settled down in Philly and met a a lovely young lady that was graduating from Penn uh, University of Pennsylvania who put a copy of Rich Dad Poor Dad in my hand. And that is now my wife, Liz. So uh, she got me to read that book and it blew my mind and completely changed everything for me. And it caused me to take a big commission check I had made from Ingersoll Rand, big for me at the time. And uh, bought, I maybe go out and buy a, a piece of real estate. When I bought a three bedroom, two bath, moved in, we got two of my drinking buddies to move in with me. They both leased bedrooms from me for $500 a month a piece. And um, my mortgage was 940 so I was making 60 bucks a month and living there for free at like 27 years old or so, right? That was all I needed. That was the Kool-Aid that needed to be drank by me to sell me on the possibility of how powerful real estate was. And I, I was able to pay off all my student loans, pay off all my credit cards, get myself completely bad debt free within about a year and a half. 
still dating Liz at the time and then started buying rentals around Philadelphia while we were dating. And then we got married and I quit my job to become a full-time investor. And um, we lived off of her income for years, a lot longer than we planned on it. But we lived off of her income while I built the DeRosa Group, our business. Um, we now are apartment building owners, single family, small office, small office building owners, uh, done about four dozen fix and flips. And we are fully immersed in full-time investors. And we've been doing that. That transition of me quitting my job was 15 years ago. And I've been full-time since then. Awesome. I love the story. And how your now wife handed you rich dad, poor dad. I am also a rich dad guy. I, uh, I was not handed that, but I don't even know how I discovered it, to be honest with you. my Everybody's my got the rich dad story. Everybody's got their story on how that like, book came in, right? Yeah, like yeah. the first time it was introduced or like where, how old you were when you read it. Like everyone's got that story. Such yeah. an influential yeah. book. And um, mine was that my, unfortunately, my father passed away when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And through that process, he willed the family home to myself and my three sisters. And at that time, the question is, do we sell it, right? There's so much going on, total chaos. Do we just sell this thing? And it happens a lot. That's why probate mm-hmm. is a thing. A lot of investors pick mm-hmm. up houses that siblings are like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to pay the tax liability. We decided to keep it. And I was only 16 at the time. But my sisters managed it at first. And at 17, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I thought, mm-hmm. I already have an investment property. <laughs> but I already have it. And so... Yeah. You know, I, I started working hard, doing sales, and I slowly over the years bought my sisters out and continued to manage it as an investment property. And that was kind of like my introduction to real estate, the power of it. And I held on to it for 12 years. We just sold at the peak of the market, you know, a couple of months ago and uh, made a nice chunk on that. So excited. Cool. Congratulations. To continue man. going. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And so I'm with you on the rich dad journey and just being exposed to that mindset. I became convinced that real mm-hmm. estate investment is a means to achieve financial freedom. Yeah, it absolutely is. And um, yeah, I've heard old like, you know, adages and uh, statistics that just say like, you know, the majority of millionaires in the world made their money or, or keep their money in sticks and bricks. It is an asset. Above all of that, here's why though. Like it's not like just real, real estate is a millionaire maker. Real estate's an asset. You know, and in inflationary economies and all those things. And, you know, Rich Dad Poor Dad talks about, or Rich Dad talks about taking us off the gold standard and all this other stuff. So you're in an inflationary economy where a gallon of milk is going to cost more tomorrow than it does today. Assets ride up that curve better than anything else. So real estate is likely the most accessible and the most understandable asset and the one that you can leverage with debt and everything like that. It's hard to leverage most other assets out there. So that's why real estate, I think, does so well for people because you control the whole asset and the whole asset's growth with a a fraction of of the purchase price. Right. And not to mention, if we zoom out from the United States and go to a global scope, in the United States, we have the unique opportunity to have a fee simple estate where we own it. In other countries, that's not even possible. Mm -hmm. The government owns it. Right. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that we can own that as an asset, leverage it, you know, rent it out, have the mortgage paid, like we have so much freedom in real estate. We do. Not to go too far down the libertarian road with you, but there's other countries out there that don't charge, like 
you, we do own it, but the government still has the right to charge us for the rights to use it or the rights for its location, right? And let's call that real estate tax or other fines and fees or whatever the government has the right to charge us on it. There are countries that do not have real estate tax. So when you own a piece of real, if you own a piece of real estate with no mortgage on it, you own that real estate and the government can't come along and say, well, we're going to reassess you. And I know you were paying 10,000 a year in real estate taxes. I decided that your property's worth, uh, you know, worth more and you're going to pay me 25,000. And if you don't, I'm going to come take your property from you. Right. Meaning like the government has, they have the right to charge us handling fees and privilege benefits for, you know, call, let's call that tax where the property is located. And if we don't pay it, then they can come and take it. So they have, they kind of have collateral on us. It is, it, you're right. It's the best gig out there. And I don't, I don't question our country's freedoms, but it is one of those things where it's like, it is, but there's still some strengths, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then not yeah. that I don't, not that and property taxes are good things. My, my kids get to go to school where I live because I pay real estate taxes and my roads are paid because I pay real estate taxes. But it is one of those conversations about, you know, it, it's, it's still a good, it's still a good gig. I'll leave it there. And then they're not going to come take it from me unless I don't pay my bills. <laughs> yeah, that exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I'm curious what your single most important action is that you take on a daily basis that has attributed most to your success. You know, do, you, do okay. you have any like success habits that you can point to? Sure. I get two that one kicked in at the beginning of this year, which is pretty much every day I move my body to the point where I break a sweat for at least 20 minutes. So that's been something that was a kind of like, I hate to say it, but like a new year's resolution for 2021. Right. And I've lost a good amount of weight. And I also just have better energy. I just more above all else, I just feel good, uh, you know, and I've, you know, the, the weight loss I've had is nothing compared to the, my energy boost, right? So that's my first thing is I just have a habit and I, I've only missed maybe like three or four days in 2021 all in. And that's one thing. Second thing is uh, that I do and I've been doing this one for probably five or six years and I attribute it to this is like the lazy man's organization system because I am a professed lazy man. I'm a professed finder of the shortest route. That's my engineer in me. So I plan my year, right? And then I take my year plan and I break it down into this thing. This is more com- this is less complex than it looks like. This is my weekly planning document, right? Nice. And so that is everything on here from like my health goals, my relationship goals, like which of my I have, you know, four sisters, my three sisters myself. So which of my sisters am I going to call this week to check in and get chatty with? I got to call how many times this week am I going to call my mama? Seriously. Call your mom is on here, you know, and uh, it, all my business goals and relationship goals with my wife, everything, my kids is all on this weekly sheet. Then I take that and each day I plan out my day, my work day. I don't plan out my my fun or my off days, but I plan out my my the days that I'm in the game and in business. I plan them out every day and I'd make this right. Mm. And this is called my go call do sheet. And the I put what I where I have to go. And this is a go. Goes are on the calendar meetings, right? And so this is a go, right? I go, look, I can cross it off right now. I can cross off talking to my buddy, uh, Jeffrey, on a podcast, right? So, okay. But then I've got all the other stuff I have the, today. And then that I have next to it, the calls I have to make. And a call, what I like about the call thing is a call is something you can do whenever you want to do it. At some point, I got to call that broker and chat with him for a little bit about the deal that he told me about a month ago, 
follow-up, right? Uh, calls can slip in. Then there's the do. And the do's are longer action projects, things that might take me more than 15 minutes to do. And I've got to kind of book those on my calendar. So what I do is I put my goes in, all my appointments, and then I schedule what I'm going to do to do things. Like I've got to work on this loan application. I got to assemble all these water bills and send them over to a title company, like fun real estate people stuff, right? And then in between those things, when I'm in an intermisu, when I'm in a gap or whatever, I'll burn out some phone calls. So that's the level that I plan my day. And I also make sure that I've got like big, like one hour to two hour gaps in between things so that I can just be a little bit in response mode, but also, you know, doing my doing and my calling and all that in between. So that is my, again, it's just a handwritten sheet. I probably could put all of this in Google Calendar, but it helps me stay focused by writing it down. And I love being able to cross things off my to-do list. So I like to handwrite it so I can strike it out. And I do use my little Yale legal pad because when I'm talking to people, I just take notes on my Yale legal pad when I'm talking to them. And this is just my notes for the, it's again, lazy man, my schedule and my notes for the day, all on one page, you know? All on one page. So, yeah. But by the end of the day, it's just full of like crosses and arrows and scribbles and people's phone numbers and all that. And at the end of the day, I just take it and de decompose what's there and put it into like, I, I, you know, sweep it up into like into, you know, longer archives or whatever, if I need to. Right. You'll transfer yeah. it then to your CRM or whatever. And then, you know, throw yeah, that yeah. single I sheet of scotch paper away. Upload yeah. it all. I will. <laughs> There's been days where I don't get it all done. And so I just carry that scratch paper around the next day. I write my new go call do sheet and I've got the one from yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and that's, so I'll carry them both around and I'll knock out yesterday's go call do's and I'll knock out today's go call do's too. So, well, I again, like that. Lazy, lazy man's personal organization system. You know? Hey, it works for you and is a great principle to do your annual planning, break it down into quarters, months, and weeks, you know, and then have some type of weekly structure that. It has recurring activities as not only business. I love how you mm -hmm. mentioned the relationships because call your mama in a relationship business, but if your relationships and your personal life are suffering, your business is going to suffer. So yeah, yeah I, I love the focus of multiple different areas of life. You know, Tony Robbins talks about the different pillars in your life. Yes. And I'll probably won't be able to think about all of them right now, but it's something along the lines of finances, you know, relationships, like your, you know, love connection, wealth, you know, hell, like everything. It's like not just business. And mm -hmm. we've all been guilty at times of pouring too much into one thing and letting the others kind of slack. And we all know how that feels. So really good. It's easy to go all in on money and success. It's easy to go all in on that, right? It's easy, um, yeah. But that's not what it's about. It's That's right. part of it, certainly. But that's not what life is all about, really. And if you're going to plan your year, you get to plan in, you know, the things that matter. Like I plan in, there's a book called the, um, the family boardroom and it encourages you to take, you know, time away with individual, your kids, like, like one child, multiple kids. So one kid with me for like three to four hours, just talking stuff out, planning some fun. And my daughter's four, my son's seven. So they're young, but I still take time away with them. You know, let them do whatever they want to do. Like pick tell me which one you go to the beach. Great. Let's go to the beach. They get private date time with daddy. And it's once a quarter. And we do like, you know, of course, I take them, I hang out with them every day. But for them to get that one special time like that, like just me with them one-on-one, -on -one, not mommy and daddy, just me and them. If I didn't plan out my week and my month and my year, I wouldn't get those dates in. Because they're all things that nobody in America would say that they don't want to do stuff like that. They all want to go hang with their kids for a half day. Oh, that sounds awesome. We all want to do that, right? 
those that do it are ones that plan it, right? If you don't plan these things, they're not going to happen. They're just not. Because we, we all want to do them, but I want to do a lot of things. I want to learn how to run a marathon. But if I don't start training for it and put it on my calendar, I'm not going to do it. You know? Got to put it on the calendar. It's super yeah. important. So, I think that a lot of my listeners who are top agents or, you know, top investors out there, they're thinking that all sounds great. But if, hmm. you know, business isn't creating that freedom, then I don't have the time to do that, which might be a fallacy in and of itself. But... I want to ask you about your lead generation, right? Mm-hmm. Where are the deals coming from? That is the, always the big question. So, do you have like a number one most profitable lead gen source or anything you want to share? Yeah. So, what we do as a company, and I, and I have something to say to people that are listening to this going like, well, I'm a, one, I'm a one-off real estate agent and you know, all your weekly plan sounds good, but you know, what if my phone rings and it's somebody who wants to sell their half a million dollar house with me? I need to take that call. You do. But it doesn't mean that there's also a concept of the who, not how, right? And the sooner you can put people in to handle the first iteration of response mode, of like to handle that, for that first level of when, when items or issues and emergencies or deals or leads or opportunities come in, you've got somebody who's there to receive those things, screen them, filter them, and then bring the most important ones to you very quickly so that you can close them, um, the better off you're going to be. So to that point, my company, we raise capital from passive investors that are you know either accredited, not accredited, dealing with cash, dealing with their IRAs. Um, and we put that capital to work in mostly multifamily real estate, but also in fix and flips and other real estate ventures, right? So we, we are a real estate investment concierge and we put people into passive, 100% passive, invested through us, not their own deals, invested through my company t- types of deals. So they're called syndications. So my leads are apartment buildings that we want to buy or people that want to invest with us. Those are our avatar. Those are our attraction points. And so I have people that are my partners whose job it is to go out and find deals um, or whose job it is to receive inbound investor traffic and also have an automated system that receives that that's able to scrub those leads as they come in. But like uh, web portals and and that kind of thing. Because I find that if somebody really wants to work with you, I mean, unless they're in distress, you probably don't need to answer the phone right when they call. They can work their way through a system. You know, I mean, and I, I don't agree with the whole like, oh, you got to strike with Aaron's hot. You got to answer them right when they got their checkbook out and stuff like that, perhaps. But you may lose one or two of those over losing a lot of, over like not having to deal with a lot of duds that come in that are not real leads that need to get processed and verified and validated in, in a very quick time frame. So that's my, that's our lead gen process, which is just people that help that are filters between me and the lead. Um, yeah. But also like something to screen out the, to, to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. Makes total sense. And I don't really have like an army background, but this analogy is coming to mind. It's like you have your infantry unit, and they're on the front lines, but the general isn't there because he needs to be looking at the entire army and making strategic decisions. You got to be removed at least one layer and yeah. he's up on the horse looking at the whole thing, right? And when there's an, an actual opportunity, boom, then you step in. So, yeah, yeah with yeah. that, it's, it's an important layer to have. With your deals that you're doing, I'm very curious like what your unit range is because I don't know what, if you know much about my background or what I'm doing now, but... I have a real estate marketing agency that specializes in primarily lead generation, but we do branding, advertising, copywriting, 
bunch of different stuff. And nowadays I have my commercial real estate license. I focus on multifamily, five to 50 units and sourcing off-market properties. So I'm very curious about your, mm -hmm. you know, your mix. Like how many units are you going up to? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, what's your preferred, specifically in the multifamily space? Yeah, so we buy, our big affinity is for stuff that's like 80 and above. Like, but, okay. but that's a lot of people want that, 80 units and above. That's um, why I, I go to 50 because it like removes a lot of that bigger fish competition. Mm -hmm. There's like a little yeah. fish there. And I'll tell you why bigger fish want 80 and above. Above 80 uh, units, typically your business plan, your cash flow is spinning off enough that you can support payroll. Meaning like you can have at least one to two staff that run that 80 to 90 unit for you, which means you do that. You've got on-site staff. Okay, great. Now I can live anywhere, right? Now I can own that 80, 90, 100 unit. And that property could be in Kentucky, in North Carolina, in, you know, Maine, wherever, in Texas, whatever, wherever it is, I can hire a property manager that can have on-site staff in the property. This is why there's affinity for it. But you know, we really like those kinds of deals, but also just like you, I get that it's very, they're very competitive. So we have a model that we can acquire, like, you know, we're, we're under contract on a 32 unit right now. So 30, 40, 50, mainly because I, I really like that range and it kind of gets overlooked in multifamily, but there's a great sweet spot. Need a few, a bunch of reasons. They're typically owned by older operators that are trying to age out, like air quote mom and pop. Not that I'm trying to take advantage of mom and pop, but mom and pop typically own the 3040 unit and they can make a good living once they own a free and clear, a really good living on, on the 3040 unit. So they tend to own a lot of those. That, that's, that's who typically owns stuff like that, not corporations and everything like that. Right. Number one. Number two, they, deals like that are typically too big for the really small newer investors. And they're typically too small for the big investors. So you, they just get, when a guy that owns a bunch of two units sees a 30 unit, is oh, I wish I could. No, I don't know how to do that. Got it. When the guy that see the guy that owns like a couple thousand units around the corner sees a 30 unit, puh, why would I mess with something that small? I can't make the fees I need to make on something like that. So they're a great little sweet spot. My favorite property that I own, my favorite one that pays me very, very well, but also just a cool property that does really, really well, runs off the handle, is a property in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And it's a 49-unit apartment building, right? Most people wouldn't touch it, but it is a just gem. I love it. I love the structure. I love the tenants. I love the collection ratios. It's, a, it's an old converted factory. Just really cool building. Aside from everything else, 100% collected every month. It's a great location. And, um, and that and we'll probably, I'll try and keep it forever if I can. So some of my favorites are properties that size, but they get overlooked, you know? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Yeah. It makes total sense. And uh, I'll be in touch after to add you to <laughs> sure. my investor list and send you some deals. I'd love to talk to you. And we have what's even better, but the best thing is we have ways to finance deals like that, right? right. Um, yeah, through, through the syndication model, through investors coming in with us and everything like that. So we can give investors exposure because investors still get a big tax loss if I can buy something like that and do a, and do a cost segregation study. You know, I, I can provide a lot of benefit to people in that. And I probably wouldn't do a really small deal because there is like a, a point of diminishing return. But yeah, we would certainly do stuff like that. Sure. And part of what my company, Broger Realty, offers as well, it's an end-to-end -end solution. So we do help with tax consulting at the end. And within my network, mm -hmm. 
through doing interviews like this and being yep. in the real estate marketing space for years, we have an incredible network that can help them from being a property owner that's waiting for the perfect 1031 and just like can't escape this with this one property that they have to now they have a tax deferred lump sum that now they can do many things with and we can kind of help with that whole process. So yeah, it definitely something we can, we can touch on, but uh, to keep the podcast rolling mm-hmm. for, our, for our listeners, <laughs> the industry is heading in the next couple of years. What, what multifamily, real on? estate in general, multifamily, which, which industry? Macroeconomic, just everything. Oh boy, the big, the big know, right? industry. Yeah, right. Right, right, right. yeah. I mean, you know what, uh, Jeffrey, my crystal ball is broken. You know, I, I, I don't know, but yeah, I know, man, I can't get a fix. I can tell you what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of overspending. I'm seeing a lot of over exuberance and I'm seeing a lot of probably overconfidence and cockiness going on. Mm-hmm. As much as people are out there talking about like, oh, COVID and the Delta variant and we're going to go back on a lockdown. Nah, I, I don't think any of that's really going to happen. I think that America feels pretty good still, uh, but economically. And I think that, that we're probably missing something because of that. We're probably missing something. And a lot of, and I think on top of that, a lot of money got thrown into the system. We're propped up on certain things that we're not sure what's going to happen when those props go away. Those would be list them out mortgage forbearance, um, eviction moratoriums and uh, unemployment right? Jacked up unemployment um, benefits. So when those things start to dry up, I wonder if we're going to see if the emperor's emperor's wearing clothes or not, you know, Um, because the stock market continues to go up and and that. But like, uh, you know, alternative assets are blowing up, Jeffrey. So I think that people are looking for something like look at Bitcoin, man. I mean, it's all over the place. Real estate all over the place. Investment in alternatives, is taking off. And I think it's because people are starting to, they're making a lot more. They're socking it away for either just in case another COVID happens or just in case, just in case, you know, the bottom falls out and we all end up living in snow caves again. I don't know. So I think that we've got a really good party going. I hope it keeps going for a little bit. I'd like, I'd love it if the pot of boiling water wasn't as hot, if we could turn it down a little bit, you know, instead, because you know what happens when things overheat, 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 at some point they pop, right? You know, I'm not seeing what would cause it to pop directly, aside from the things I just listed, but I don't think that those are things that would topple our economy. I just think that we might see a really serious, a really reasonable correction, on being all the way up here to like, oh, okay, this is where we're supposed to be down here, right? Right. Yeah. I'm not, even though I'm a Kisaki student, right? I'm not one to say, like him and Peter Schiff might say or whatever, is that we're looking at a burst, uh, is that we're looking at like, a, like, a, like an economic topple of our system. I don't see it. Don't know why. I don't know why. Just, that's just not what my gut says. And that I think we're going to continue to buy right, buy the right assets. We're going to continue to buy things that cash flow today, not bet on appreciation like a lot of other people are. Um, mm. we're, we're, we're going to continue to make make deals that 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 make money today. And if they if things slow down or have a correction, then the deals I bought will continue to make money because real estate tend, tends to continue to make cash flow even if real estate values go down. Rents don't correlate with that. Right, you know, uh, and, and that so that so I, I think that's my thought. What do you think? What do you think? What I would, I would take, give me feedback. 
Yeah, great principle that you mentioned yeah. in, in that explanation of focusing on assets that cash flow today rather mm-hmm. than assets that you're banking on appreciation. Oh, we'll sell it in three years. <laughs> it's like, ah, careful with that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that thought. I'm also a, a student of Peter Schiff and I hear oh, that boy. side of it. You know, I the the radical capitalist side of it, like, oh, everything's going to burst and we should just go back to total free market capitalism and this and that. I've heard, I've hear, heard Peter's I hear this, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. So I, I hear you yeah. on that. And I don't want to go too far down that road. I heard a Peter Schiff joke. Okay. And this is this is from Robert Helms when he spoke at Dealmaker Live. He's, you know, the one of the real estate radio guys, right? And he was talking about Peter Schiff and said it with love, which is fine. He's like, Peter Schiff, who has predicted 19 of the last two recessions, you know, like he's a, I, I like him. I hear I like what he has to say, but he's a perma bear, right? He's just talking. All he does is talk about how you know the world's gonna end. And if you all, if all you do is that, then you kind of start to come off like Chicken Little, you know. Because mm. some point, at some point, the sky's not falling. At some point, the world's not gonna fall apart because it doesn't ever, you know. At some point, we kind of figure things out. And I maybe this is my inner optimist, but I'd like to believe in my lighter times in my life. I'd like to believe that. Whatever happens, even if we have to have an economic reset, we'll figure it out as a country. We figured COVID out. You know, we came, we bounced back a lot faster than some people thought we were going to on this. So, absolutely. I think that there's, and this is just an American thing. I think that there is human resilience that, that economists can't quantify so they don't count on it, you know? But I, I think that human resilience is the one unknown factor that you can't put in an algorithm, but is there. And we all know it's there. So That's also a great point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, economists are looking at numbers, statistics. Econ always resonated with me because I like statistics and how you could look at bell curves and look at predictive graphs of like, oh, well, you know, this makes sense. But the human resilience, it's so true. And so many people thought that when COVID broke out, there was going to be absolute rioting, collapse of society. And what happened, there was a little bit of unrest. There was some riots. It, there was some riots, not just because of COVID, but that was like, we, we were a pot of, of water at 211 degrees for a very long time. But at the same during COVID. time, yeah, everyone also banded together in a way. We were all mm-hmm. in a struggle together. We had a common struggle to then battle, essentially. It was like kind of like we were like going to war against COVID. And, mm-hmm. and I, I really like to see that camaraderie and, you know, moving forward, I love the concept. I'm more of an optimist. I kind of have to like check my optimism to make sure that my risk aversion is, is in line with my asset allocation formula that I have for myself. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. it's life is good. We'll always figure it out. Like it's going to keep going up. I'm kind of that kind of guy. But, uh, you know, overall I have a very optimistic outlook on the future. Yeah. I think that th- things are overinflated. There's too much money in the market that has been printed. Mm-hmm. We should go back to the gold standard. But all these things, you know, in and of itself. America, you and I both know that's not going to happen, right? It's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no. um, you know, you can't put Pandora back in the box. No, no, you know? definitely not. So we either need to keep printing money, keep printing money, keep printing money. You ever have a concept called a debt jubilee? Mm-mm. Uh, that's what I think happens. Okay. Again, this is rabbit hole thing. And this is something that people like Peter Schiff and Kiyosaki and whatnot, it would blow their mind, right? A debt jubilee is something that's happened before. A debt jubilee, what it is, is a economic reset. 
And it's not, let's all go to Bitcoin. It's let's all make a global agreement that we're going to control or delete our financial system. And what you do, the way that works is that, and by the way, think about it. The dollar has not, was not the trading item when Jesus was walking the earth. You know, at some point, financial systems come in and come out. And so a debt jubilee works like this. You look at all the debt in the world and you bring it all to zero, right? You just agree that all debts are forgiven across the board. Small stuff like credit, like my credit card and your car loan all go to zero. But national debts go to zero. Mortgages go to zero. Everything goes to zero and we start over again, right? And we, we just bring debt levels to zero. You reboot, you know, go back to like uh, maybe a new global currency, whatever it may be. But you just kind of wipe everything out and send then had to do a do-over right it's called a debt jubilee and it's happened in our society it's happened in history not always is it painful china's done it a few times you know um and don't i mean you know like oh my god you're talking about a communist country well you know they did it and it wasn't pain wasn't pleasant for everybody but it's one of the reasons why they were able to grow so fast is because they said okay we were just kidding try that again here's the new currency you're going to use here's the new debt structure Here's the new everything, you know. And Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not that I think it's a good idea or whatnot, but I think eventually that's how what the, this printing money and national deficit and all these big snowballs we're building get cured. We're not gonna, you're not going to pay them off. The one declares bankruptcy. Yeah. Which if you can get everybody to win from that, you know, right. like if we all get it, because every country's got debt, not just U.S. Right. Right, they all. Everybody's got debt. Even China, they got. You know, everybody has debt. We, we okay. Listen, we're all kind of agree that it all goes to zero. You know, and that just it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. The, the the it'll have to get a lot hotter in here before we do it. But I think that that's really the answer. And it's maybe not Bitcoin or whatever. Maybe Bitcoin or people's currency is what evolves out of that. But you know, it's certainly not going to be. It probably will be a blockchain controlled technology. But it's not probably not going to be Bitcoin. You know. So it'll be something yeah. like that, but but the, whatever it is doesn't exist yet. Specifically, right? What's that? It won't necessarily be Bitcoin specifically, but it will. It will be, be that coin. Like, oh, it'll be a coin. Limited. Yeah, it'll be a coin. Maybe not that coin. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, I'm, sorry. I hope, that, I hope this is a benefit to you. Your benefit to your show. I know we're going on tangents, but it's fun, right? No, it is fun, and yeah. I think that it helps to alleviate the fears of a lot of investors and property owners thinking like. You know, should I sell now? Should I buy now? What's happening? Oh, COVID. Oh, it's going to break out again. Oh, what's going on? Uh, I, I think that just having open conversations <sighs> like this helps to alleviate Sorry. some of that fear. And and at the end of the day, what it comes down to, something that I learned from, from Tony Robbins referencing Sir John Templeton, who's like one of the greatest investors of all time, it came back to something that I alluded to earlier, which is called asset allocation. Mm-hmm. Whatever, your, whatever your risk aversion is as an investor... Make sure that you then create an asset allocation formula that you're comfortable with. And as long as you don't deviate from that, you'll always be fine. You'll never be over leveraged. Because mm-hmm. when things go down, it's like how Robert Kiyosaki says, it's like having a sale at the grocery store, everyone goes running. But when the economy has a sale, everyone runs away. Yeah. And the reason why is because they are over leveraged and counting on appreciation and they're making mistakes where when things do drop a little bit, now they have to sell. And I, I said something a couple weeks ago, don't buy what you can't hold. Mm-hmm. And the concept there is like, 
if you can't hold it through a five, 10 year period, if you have to. I love that. Don't buy what you can't hold. I mean, that's, that's been the best advice I could give anybody going into this, whatever the economic cycle we're going to is, is that, you know, if, if what you got is producing enough cash flow, cash flow now, I mean, unless it's like something that's complete and in a speculative industry and, and don't, I mean, people will smack me for saying this, but like Airbnb, give an example like Airbnb, you know, mm. Airbnbs are great when the sun is shining, you know, and you can make, I'm making 4,000 a week people on my Airbnb. Yeah. I'm printing paper. Look at this. It's great. <laughs> okay, cool. How did you, how did you do during COVID though? When that happened, you know, like right. that's like had when nobody went anywhere for like six months and everybody was locked in their houses, how did your Airbnb do? Right. You're doing better now. I get that. But when people don't have as much expendable income, you know, that Airbnb is the first thing they're going to stop going to. And I use Airbnbs. I'm not knocking them. I have friends that are making a living with them. But I prefer things that are more at the at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is housing, like, like permanent long-term housing people live in. So Yeah, makes sense. And that mm. kind of brings me to my next question. What's your process for evaluating what to say no to? Mm. Well, I had people that are more no people than I am. And so I, if left to my own decisions, I would say yes to just about everything. You know, I'd, I'd be all in on industrial properties. I'd be buying all the Bitcoin they can make. I'd be doing this, I'd be doing that. Cause I, I get shiny nickel syndrome and that's okay. I'm excited. I'm a positive guy, Matt, right? Jeffrey, a positivity is my, my positive. When I took the strengths finder test, which everybody should take, my number one strengths finder uh, outcome was positivity. I am a positive thinking guy, which means that, and it's, it's good to be a positive thinking person. It's a good life outlook, but everything smells like a rose when you, when you think positivity, right? And so I see a lot of shiny nickels and every opportunity is. So it took me like five years of business to figure that out because I would get into things and they wouldn't work out because not everything does. And so I've learned to surround myself by, by, by more people that are a little more like, you know, conservative, a little more no people than they are. Yes, man. You know, like I am, I'm like Jim Carrey from yes, man. That's me. So I, I leave final decisions to people that can give me like their vote on things and stuff like that. So that's how, that's my vetting process is I'm not the only one on top of that. We only look in certain markets we're looking to buy and I won't buy anywhere in the United States. We only buy in two States right now thinking about maybe adding a third one, but that's it. So we're very zoomed in on what we even look at. And that helps me me recover from shiny nickel syndrome too. Nice. And did you have some kind of learning lesson that that brought you to that point? You know, it's easy to look at you today and say, oh, you know, he's this successful real estate investor, but there's always a story behind that. And many failures lead to later successes. So do you have a favorite failure of yours? Something that was a huge learning lesson? Oh, yeah, I'd make you a list. But the one that stands out the most for like the shiny nickel syndrome is that um, we bought a, uh, and I still own this thing and it's done well for us and I'm, I'm happy for it. I just wonder where my life would be if I didn't buy it. But it's my office building. I have a 10,000 square foot office building in downtown Trenton. And when we bought it, we had bought like a couple of smattering of single family homes. We had bought a couple of small multifamilies, you know, um, in a few locations. And then this office building came up for sale and we looked at it. And at that time, the state of New Jersey was leasing up office space left and right at like $18 a square foot. And I I, this building was for sale for $55 a square foot. And I did the math. I'm like, well, geez, you get a 30 or money back every year. How great would that be? Right? That's awesome. Well, by the time that we took us to buy it, 
the governor of New Jersey changed and a guy named Chris Christie took office, right? And he just reversed all the contracts the government was in and really shrunk the New Jersey government. As it, needed, it was over, over leveraged and overbought and overcommitted. So he shrunk down the New Jersey state government, got them out of contracts, broke a lot of contracts they were in, and their bubble of growth shrunk. While that happened, the bubble of the economy burst as well. So I'm left holding this office, empty office building that I thought was going to be a single tenant was going to come take it. But now Matt has to figure it out, right? And it was a dark time for us, but we figured it out, right? I, it's, you know, never missed a payment on it. And I went in there and I filled it up full of small businesses and did like a Regis office complex kind of center with it. Right. It's fine. And it does well now. But that was an absolute shiny nickel. And if I just stuck to residential and stuck to multifamily, which is what I knew how to do, then I would have grown that much faster. And I could have bought a lot more multifamily at a half, with a half million dollars at that time than the half million dollars I spent on that office complex. Wow. Yeah. So, powerful lesson. Mm-hmm. Powerful lesson yeah. for sure. You know, yeah. not, not investing in things that you don't understand. I think is yeah. the, is the we're also betting on like one out. My one out was state of New Jersey coming in and paying me eighteen dollars a square foot. I was right in the path of progress. It made sense, but that was the only way that that deal made sense. Right? Mm-hmm. Was if that happened, and because it didn't happen, I'm now left holding a property that's costing me twenty five thousand a year in real estate taxes, and you know three or four thousand a month in mortgage payments. Right. So right. it was a uh, it was an albatross for a very long time. It's not anymore because we filled it up, and I got a lot of great lessons. And you know what, Jeffrey, this is what goes back to tenacity and people's resolve and everything like that. That deal was a mess, but Liz and I hunkered down and got at least out, and hunkered down and figured things out, and then refinanced to get cheaper debt on it, and then bought more multifamily and then started holding meetups in the building and sort of made it like a real estate investment hub and put our company there. And our company started paying rent as part of the building. So we made it work. And I got a lot of lessons and I got a few battle scars in the process, but got a lot of great lessons when I did it too. And so would I do it over again? Yeah, I, I sure wish I could learn those lessons without going through it. But if I had to go through that to learn what I learned now, I probably would do it again. Probably would. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, true that. There's a saying that, you know, learning from your own mistakes is experience. Learning from the mistakes of others is wisdom. Yeah. And yeah, I find yeah. it difficult to absorb wisdom. Usually yes. I have to, I have to go learn it myself. I know. Unfortunately, that's the way that it goes. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate as much unless you've lived it, right? You know? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if this has been a great episode and to wrap things up, I'm curious if there is a question that I should have asked you or if there's anything that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier. No, I mean, there's a lot to each of us as individuals. So we got into some really cool stuff. I mean, there's a, we don't have to go to it today, but maybe I'll come back and tell more. There's a whole story around the adoption story of me getting back to integrate with my birth mother and that whole thing, which I don't get to talk about on podcasts very often, um, but it's a really great story. And that, so we'll do that. We'll have to do that another day. There's a, uh, yeah, you know, there's a whole journey of investing with your spouse that Liz and I uh, went through that the ups and downs and the highs and the lows around that too. But I'll just have to come on and tell those stories again. Jeffrey, I'll just have That's to do right. it then. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to have you back on, especially yeah, investing with your spouse. That would be very interesting yes. to me personally. My fiance, mm-hmm. you know, has been a previous real estate investor. We're getting married in September and- Congrats, uh, man. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Fellow September, uh, we're September 24th. 
So awesome. fellow September uh, person here, only wedding advice to you is renew your vows as frequently as you and your wife can, because you guys are going to take make great promises to each other in about a month and a half, right? But make sure that you remake those promises because the wedding is one day, but being married is a constant recommitment to each other. And so Liz and I renew our vows every five years. And I've heard of people that renew them every year, which is really cool. But we renew every five. We just did our 15 year last year, which was awesome. We do like a renewal and then we do a getaway. But thank you. Um, that's my you know, unsolicited wedding advice. Well, I love it. I really appreciate that. And I'm curious how my listeners can contact you if they want to bring you a deal or reach out in any way. Sure. Well, they can do a lot of things. Well, they can simply just go to our website. And at that website, they can buy a copy of my book. They, if they want to hear about passive investments we offer to accredited and non-accredited investors, uh, they can get that there too. We do have some education platforms. They can get in touch with those things at that website. And they can just get in touch with all the media that we have out there, including my podcast, my wife's podcast, all the great stuff, my YouTube channel. It's all there at derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A group, D-E-R-S-A group.com. That's on my shirt. If you guys are watching the video, derosagroup.com, you guys can hear more about us there. Awesome. Matt Faircloth, everyone real estate investor and interesting human. Thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. And I know that my uh, listeners receive some value from it. Awesome, Jeffrey. Good having you. Good, good being with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.